So uh, we, are, we are in a series called Contrast, and th this series, uh, the subtitle is When Worldviews Collide, right? We're talking about a difference that exists between the worldview of the church of Jesus uh, and, and the, and the worldview of this culture that existed when the Bible was written uh, during this time, right? A very Ro Roman dominant rule and culture. And this morning, I specifically titled it as part four of our series, this, Who Else Can Do This? Who else can do this? And how many guys know sometimes uh, you can answer this question with, well, tons of people, right? There's a, there's a need at hand, and you think of somebody in your mind, and your heart. Who else can accomplish this task, right? And maybe there's something where tons of people come to mind. There's other times we ask this question, and not many people come to mind. For instance, who else maybe can play basketball pretty well? We got a lot of people, right? I remember in high school, like I wasn't the most athletic guy. Uh, but I remember just seeing tons and tons of people actually being pretty decent basketball players. You got pretty decent basketball players to the point that obviously we have collegiate level, we have uh, professional level. Uh, there's a good amount of people that actually know how to ball it up, you know what I'm saying? But here's my question to follow up that with. Who else can average a triple-double during an NBA season? Come on, somebody. Russell Westbrook, come on. Oklahoma Pride, thunder up. Here we go. We're ready. Uh, who else can sell ice cream? Tons of people. Hey, you know, Ponca City, we got, we got some pretty good ice cream choices. We got Freddy's, you know what I mean? We got, uh, what are some other ones? Come on. We got Brahms. Yeah, Brahms the obvious one. Uh, we got, I mean, what do we got here? This is a terrible example, I'm realizing, on the spot here, right? Uh, but here's my point. Who else sells a circus animal cookie ice cream? Nobody else but Brahms, somebody. Come on. They stand out. They're on top. All right, here we go. Who else can make a barbecue sauce? Tons of people. You go to the grocery store, you see tons. But who else can make it as good as head country? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Do we got some Ponca City pride up in the house this morning? Are we snoring? Are we sleeping? We might be sleeping. Here's what I want to, here's the point I'm trying to make. When you make a bigger difference in the world, you stand out. Come on. When you do something specific that not many else people can do, this creates some purpose in your life. This creates some specific purpose. You get in the pocket of maybe what you were created to do as a human being. And, and this section of the Bible we're going to look at this morning, there were some followers of Jesus, this man who had resurrected, that people saw after his death, walking around, talking to people, eating meals with people. He's basically like doing miraculous things even though he has ascended into heaven. We're picking up in this narrative where the early church was empowered by God. And they were saying, only Jesus, who else can do this? Who else can miraculously heal? No one else but Jesus. This was the argument that the followers of Jesus were making during this time because they just saw, we're picking up in the biblical narrative where they just saw this man who was lame from birth. He couldn't walk. And one of the apostles, one of the followers of Jesus spoke into his life, released a power, prayed blessing over him, and he stood up and he walked. And it got everybody's attention because this is the first time the, they passed by this guy every day and this is the first time they saw this man walk. So they started to ask this question, who else can do this? So we're going to look at the scripture this morning. I'm going to read the entire section, and then we're going we're to break it down piece by piece. But we're hanging out in Acts chapter 4, and um, there's, there's some criticism at hand in terms of what's happened. There's a stir going on. There's a little bit of a threatening force to be reckoned with here in terms of what the church is doing as they've just healed a man based on just calling upon the name of Jesus. And we pick up here in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind but which we must be saved. Can we pray this morning? Lord, help us recognize this morning, Lord, only what you can do. Lord, help us be in tune, Lord. The realization for these people that were coming against a new power, a newfound authority, Lord Jesus, there was a realization they had to come to. And Lord, I pray that we would find that realization as well. Lord, that we would be in tune with the idea that you are different, that you are holy, completely set apart. And Lord, help us identify that difference in our lives as we just call upon your name, knowing that you are a God who is worthy to be called upon because you choose to be our Savior, our Messiah. So Lord, we, we hold you high in regard this morning as our Lord, as our Savior, and we worship you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. Now, it's interesting because during this time, you would think it would be great news for human society. People that understand that they're imperfect human beings. People that understand that they have fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes sin becomes an abusive word within the church that we don't want to talk about. But I love the subtext of what sin is defined as in Romans. It says, for all have sinned, and it says, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Come on. If you don't think that you are God in this place, you can admit the fact that you are missing the mark, that you are a person who is an imperfect human being. So you would have thought during this time for these people, the fact that their Messiah had come, the fact that their Messiah had created an escape route, a rescue to human beings in this state of sin that we kind of feel sometimes trapped in, you would have thought this would have been amazing news. You would have thought since this man who couldn't walk all of a sudden could walk because of the authority, just simply because of the name of Jesus, would have been great news. But for this audience and for these people coming against the followers of Jesus, it was not. Why? Why was it not? It wasn't because if you already were in power, this became threatening. It wasn't good news for this specific audience because if you were one of the ones who had blood on your hands from rejecting and condemning this Messiah allowing him to receive the death penalty by persecution, you probably felt a little bit guilty. This probably wasn't good news. If you were a person who was in charge of the central, central institution of administering God's laws, Jews used to worship in the temple. There were sacrifices to be made for these people's sins. There were things that needed to be administered. The priests were constantly doing different things to make sure people were in right relationship with their God. And for these people to realize God was doing something new and they weren't in tune with it meant that they were doing things religiously without purpose. Your role became a little bit less meaningful because God was up to something new at this point in history. 
And these are the characters that we're going to be looking at this morning as we break it down. And let's go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 1 this morning as we kind of go back to the top of this narrative. And it says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So once again, this group of people. Who were these people? The leaders of the temple and the Sadducees is the equivalent of your social, political, economic elite during this day. These were people that could call upon the authorities of that culture and get things done or stop things from happening, right? These were people that ruled. These were people that basically oversaw a lot of the, 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 the community drive, a lot of the community influence. These were the top of the top during this day that found themselves in power. Acts 4.2 as we continue. It says this, they were greatly disturbed. These people in power began to be disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. But here's what we need to understand. We were introduced to this group of people called the Sadducees. These, this group of people was a specific group that didn't believe in this doctrine of the resurrection, meaning this. Many Jews during this time believed that when, after they died, there would be a time where God would come to restore the world and they would resurrect in their human bodies and everything would be fine, right? These specific people did not believe in this doctrine. So the fact that this doctrine was actually being talked about was an extreme threat to the society and the social structures during this time. It was a threat to this very power. But you had people that didn't believe in this resurrection altogether, but then you also had extreme people like the Pharisees, these people that created additional laws that many times in the Gospels Jesus was condemning. These people believed it's so hardcore that they believed, hey, I'm going to do whatever it needs to be done in culture because I know that when I die, I will be resurrected. I will do whatever I want. So anytime there was, there was times where we talk about the resurrection and this idea of the resurrection, people of power would feel threatened. And they would want to shut it down. And that is why in this part of the gospel, or in this part of Acts, we see these people of power and authority struggling. Because they don't want this doctrine of the resurrection to actually begin to spread. They're trying to get to the bottom of what is happening. They know that if God is suddenly about to do a drastic thing, that there's something big that God wants to do on the other end of it. And what's so amazing Rather than being a person that didn't believe in the resurrection whatsoever or being a person that strictly just believes that it's all about me when I die, I will be resurrected, what the, what, what the followers of Jesus, specifically Peter and John were saying during this time, is the resurrection is found in Jesus. During this time, there wasn't hashtag fake news, social media, how word would he be spread, how do we know something's true, how do we know something's false. You know how you knew something was true or false? Eyewitness testimony and word of mouth. Word of mouth had spread that this man who was killed, was crucified, was found walking around. People actually saw him. So during this time, there weren't many skeptics to understanding Jesus had actually resurrected. So where the, these people found themselves as they said, hey, you know that man, eyewitness testimony, the one that we know was found walking around the resurrected Jesus? He's doing something new. And rather than it being this, this, this idea that the Pharisees believed in, this doctrine that they believed in. This was an actual event that was rooted in history that the apostles said, hey, guess what? This is happening. God's beginning to roll the ball in history and leading us to a place of full and complete restoration on this earth. And for the people in the audience during this time of those who were in power, this was absolutely threatening to everything that they valued and were all about. Let's continue. So it says they seized Peter and John, right? We don't want them to be in power. 
So what do they do? Their reaction is they seize Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in the jail until the next day. How many of you guys know that throughout the Bible, it's not like all sunflowers and roses, but throughout the Bible, we, have, we see a theology of suffering. That God calls us to carry our cross. Yes, we receive blessing, but at the same time, sometimes there's going to be people that are hostile towards the message and the power of Jesus. So we see this beginning to happen in the early church. They're thrown in jail simply because of this message. Simply because of what they've done as they've ministered. But I love it. Verse 4 is the key, you guys. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. They were seized. They faced persecution. They faced hardship. And in the background, while they were in jail, the seeds that they had planted, how were they harvested? 5,000 people believed. The elite, the top 1%. We're not in power anymore. The rest of the community found refuge in this message and this power that God had come to restore rescue and give purpose to humans. God was doing something so new. But let's think about this for a second. What if your life had so much purpose and hope that even in your failures, progress was being made? This is how God works in our lives. Even sometimes when we feel like we're stuck, we're in seasons when we're stuck, we say, well, this is a quote-unquote failure of a season. I've made a mistake. I throw my life into a certain box that says, well, I'm a failure. Even in those moments when you trust in God, God is breaking through in the background. Come on, somebody. When we are sleeping, you better believe God is working the night shift. When we are unattentive to the things of him, and maybe we didn't do certain things out of a religious obligation, guess what? He is still pursuing us and making progress on this earth and giving our life purpose. You might have came into church this morning feeling like a failure and God wants to bring purpose into your life and tell you right now that your life is not purposeless, that your life has purpose and even if you find yourself in a season where you're discouraged, you're just down on the ground, God's saying, I'm making progress in the background and I'm giving you purpose today. This is such good news for the people during this time, but how many of you guys know this translates to us in the present because life is so hard, but God brings purpose, even in the things we want to categorize as failures, because that's the God he is. He brings purpose and hope, even in the midst of things we want to categorize as things that we're not proud of. Let's, let's continue. Acts five, or 4, 5 through 7, it says this, the next day the rulers, the elders, the teachers, so they threw him in jail. Okay, now we're going to get this thing together and, and figure out what's going on. The teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Power and supernatural power, once again, was thought of a little bit differently during this time. You had sorcerers. You had magicians who would operate in specific power, but as we talked about early in this series, this was a different type of power. This lame man was raised up physically uh, just simply because of the name of Jesus of Nazareth being spoken over his life. So we see a contrast in the difference, but we have accusation coming because people are going, what kind of pagan, power, demonic force are you guys using here so we can get to the bottom of this? But it's very interesting because this is when Jesus ministered, when Jesus healed, this is the same type of opposition he faced as well. So let's look at this really quick in Luke chapter 11. 
Luke is actually the prequel to the book of Acts. Luke, is, Luke writes the book of Acts. It's a continuation, a sequel. So earlier on, we see similar themes. We see similar writing themes. And we see at Luke chapter 11, a similar instance. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, a man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Here we go again. In a spiritual sense, God is doing something amazing in this moment, removing this from this person's life, and people begin to get amazed by it. But we have the doubters. We have the verse 15 doubters who say, some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is announcing this new thing that God is doing at this point in history, much like his church in Acts. It says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus was saying, this is different. The power I come removes demons, removes that which is impure, removes evil manifestations from people. And if I do that, that means and shows what side I am on. This is a different power. This is a power that is bringing goodness upon people. And these people were in denial about what God was doing and what God, or what in fact was happening. I truly feel like this morning there might be instances of some people in the room in your life where you've just kind of been in that same denial in terms of what God's doing in your life. Maybe you categorized it as fate, coincidence, random chance, but you've seen some good things burst forth in your life. And I just really believe this this morning. If that's you, God wants to remind you that he's been there and he's in the back owner of your life doing good things the entire time. He wants to remind you he is the source. He wants to remind you that he's been pursuing you the whole time. And maybe you've been in denial about God having a heart and love to chase you your entire life. But he has been. He's been chasing you and trying to get your attention. And the things that you've categorized in the blips and the radar of your life that have been good things, God has been sit sitting back saying, that was me. That was me the whole time. Sometimes we can so easily get into the idea of denial of what God is currently doing. Jesus makes reference to this power he operates in, and then we continue. In verse 8, it says, then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with this power, the Holy Spirit, right? The same power that conquered the grave, that raised Jesus from the dead, that he's empowered his church earlier in the book of Acts with. Says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and Peter begins preaching. He begins pushing back. He begins using the wisdom and the power of the Spirit through his communication to deliver something that's going to pierce hearts, 
Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. <laughs> Basically saying, if we're being held accountable for the good things that we did, Maybe we should kind of flip the script a little bit and allow you to kind of bask in the accountability of the fact that each and every one of you, because of your social power, because of your economic power, because of your political power, have blood on your hands for the Savior and Messiah that was murdered. If we're going to be held accountable for the good that we've done by allowing this man to be freed from his physical ailment, why don't we allow ourselves to understand that we're kind of on a similar playing field by your accusations, by admitting the fact that each and every one of you has blood on your hands, even if it's not direct. There's blood that can be found on your hands because of the political and social structure that existed during this time. A man who was lame since birth is now healed. Is that good or bad? Here's what I love. It's hard to frame a man who has been freed from a physical ailment and on the other side of that see this man walking once again and frame that in any way and try to convince somebody that that is bad. I love what God does here. One of the first miracles of the church, he frames in a way that's undeniably good. God operates in a way where people see it and it's not like, well, you know, like, what's going on here? This man is freed. I mean, obviously that's evil. No. What's, what's happened here is an obviously good thing in terms of the human condition and, and what this man experienced. And now this public person is being experienced in society and people are saying, he's different, he's changed. Something miraculously good has happened. Peter's saying, you crucified him. And you all have blood on your hands. But it transitions to a question for us. It begs a question for us. We are a people that are born into this world, quote-unquote, spiritually lame. Once again, we're not perfect. We fall short of God's glory. We miss the mark. We make mistakes. We are not gods in our own right. We come into this earth, are born into this earth in a human condition that's spiritually lame. And then we have a God who offers himself by sacrificing his son, inviting us to place our faith in him. Not by our works, not by our might, but simply place our faith in him. And he will take that status of us being spiritually lame and allow us to spiritually thrive and have purpose on this earth. In the same way these people questioned or had even a reason to question whether this, this physical thing that happened was good or bad, the same argument's being made. God is in the background of our lives. God is providing purpose in our lives. God has given a rescue operation through his son Jesus to take us from people that are spiritually lame to be people that are spiritually full to have purpose. Is that good or bad? And for some reason in this life, some of us convince ourselves that that is bad. But I'm here to tell you and be the deliverer of good news this morning that God loves you and has allowed that good news to bring purpose to your life in the ways that sometimes we blind ourselves to the good news of Jesus, to the realities of cosmic questions that we have. What is my purpose in this life? Jesus becomes the answer to all of those things. The deepest, darkest things that we think about when we think about as humans, what happens when we die? What is my purpose on this earth? God, what have you done? Or God, do you even exist? God's knocking on the door of our hearts to remind us that imperfection that you feel and you sense in your human condition every day points towards something is wrong, and Jesus becomes the absolute solution to that problem. 
Peter's communicating and allowing these people to know that God is up to something new. And that newness continues to crash over into our realities of today as we continue to live as imperfect human beings, desperate for the answer. And I'm hopeful and thankful today that that answer is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Amen? So he goes on, he says this, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. It's like if you were to build a tower and you had all the right pieces, so you thought, and you have this awkward piece that you're like, well, that doesn't work, and you throw it to the side. And then you build the tower, and you realize because the tower is leaning a bit, because maybe there's a, the, the building of this, the construction of this demanded something different after you build the entire thing you realize that the peace that you rejected in the first place was the actual solution to make sure that this structure was sound. It's interesting because this is a quote out of Psalm 118. Many times the followers of Jesus would begin to speak to these Jewish people's own language. They would pull from their beliefs. They would pull from their scriptures, what we call today as the Old Testament. So we have some themes that's very interesting Peter quotes from this psalm, talking about this stone that's been rejected. But here, this is what's interesting about Psalm 118, a couple bullet points of the themes in Psalm 118. This is, he pulls from this psalm intentionally, because this is what this psalm even talks about. There's people going up to this temple, the temple of God, to celebrate God's new day and to claim his salvation. God has life-giving power, including in particular the way in which God brings his people through trouble and rescues them from danger. So we have this theme of rescue, right? We have this theme of this temple, God's mercy is reliable, as expressed in this psalm, and allows God's people to celebrate God's victory over all the powers of the world. Once again, God's giving a down payment through the healing of this man to, for people to understand that God is doing something new. The ball is rolling towards victory and complete restoration. And then lastly, a declaration that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put any confidence in mortals or in princes. When we look at the themes and we look at what Peter does, he begins to set the stage. We cannot put our confidence in social structure. We cannot put our confidence in economic structure. We cannot put our confidence in those who are the elite top 1%. But we have to get reoriented in understanding what God is doing. And we have to place our trust in Jesus and what he's up to. Because there's a new power at hand. There's a new power at play. God is doing something new and God is doing something different. And for first century Jews, we're kind of part of this discussion of who's the Messiah going to be? Who's the Messiah going to be? They're waiting for the Messiah, and they, they kind of missed it when they murdered Jesus, right? But it's interesting because Daniel 2, as well, there's all these different pieces of literature in the Old Testament that kind of prophesy or point towards to this Messiah. But I love Daniel 2 in particular talks about a stone cut out of a mountain, which would smash to pieces in this blasphemous statue of pag or pagan empire. And it would be itself become a kingdom fulfilling the whole world. So there's this illustration of people rising to power, abusing a power, and God coming to rescue, to bring purpose, to even out the playing field of society, which was flipped upside down, where basically the elite ruled and the rest of humankind was left to suffer under that yoke, that burden, and in those chains. And God comes and he says, no more. He says, I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to bring justice where justice has been imbalanced in society. The implication of what Peter's communicating is extremely clear. 
God is indeed turning the world the right way up. He's inviting people to be a part of it. What an honor and how amazing. And I love it because we have this illustration of the temple, this center place in the this, in this structure and in the society during this time for Jewish people that represented where relationship happened. And we have all of those ideas of the temple beginning to be rethought in terms of Jesus. As in other script, as scriptures and parts of the Bible where Jesus allows us to understand that we as his church become temples of his Holy Spirit rather than it being one exclusive location. God is spreading out his goodness and his goodness, good news for the world to experience and hear. But are we willing? Are we willing to be partakers and the ones that celebrate and spread that love and grace that Jesus displayed? Let's continue here. And then lastly, Acts 4.12, Peter explains to this group that's been in opposition, throwing them in jail, allowing them to speak their case. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. People got angry with this type of a message. People got angry with this type of a power because people were protecting, 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 protecting their temple, protecting their ways, protecting their power, and having an arrogance to not understand what God was up to during this time. And God in the flesh stood before them. There he is. And they missed him. And I love what the apostles ask. We end this morning with the same question we began with. Who else can do this? Who else is bringing this kind of freedom? Who else can bring this much power? Who else brings or looks this much like the Savior we've been waiting for? No one else but Jesus. Jesus' followers are saying, you're waiting for the Savior when the Savior and his rescue mission is here. For us this morning, I just believe this. Sometimes we create Savior-shaped holes in our life. Sometimes that's for us personally. We've created a Savior-shaped hole, and we fill it with all sorts of different things. Sometimes that becomes addiction. Sometimes that becomes all sorts of things that medicate our souls, allow us to feel good temporarily. But I love it because Jesus promised living water that continually and constantly refreshes and sustains our soul, our capacity. But we wait. But I feel like God wants to get our attention this morning. We need to stop waiting. The Savior's here. Sometimes for our community, we create a Savior-shaped hole, right? Well, only if this event happened, this is the Savior, this is the thing that needs to happen. If this puzzle piece happens in our community, our community will burst forth. We will be what we've always dreamed to be. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we understand the Savior is here. We understand the solution is here. We understand there's no need to wait because what God is doing today is the solution and the answer for all of our needs. But are we willing to jump in with that? Are we willing to jump in with the solution? If certain things about your life have disappointed you, or there's things about maybe our city even that have distressed you, what are we waiting for? Who else can heal the disappointment? Who else can bring healing? Who else can bring vision for the future? Who else can do the things that sometimes we create a hole for that we're aching for? 
And I'm here to tell you this morning, the answer is Jesus through his church and what God wants to accomplish, not only in our lives, but in our community and in our world. Are we willing to jump in with those things? We can get so angered with our way of thinking when it's not panning out. And we say, my Messiah, fill in the blank, isn't here yet. When Jesus is there trying to get our attention the whole time, he says, I've been here. I'm here to bring purpose. Would you follow me? Would you turn away from the things that are distracting you? Would you turn away from the things that sometimes aren't helping us make progress as a society? Would you turn towards me understanding I'm going to give you the grace to be a difference maker in this world and in your lives? Maybe that fill in the blank is the wrong Messiah. Maybe that fill in the blank that sometimes we fill as an excuse is the wrong Savior. Maybe Jesus is trying to get our attention a little bit this morning. Who else can do what Jesus has done? No one. When you look at other world religions, when you look at other Savior-type gods, Jesus is unique because of his love and his forgiveness. Only Jesus brings rest to a love, a world that is so desperate for love today in our current state. No one else can restore, restore the world back to perfect standing. No one else can fill the God-sized hole in our hearts and in our souls. No one. Only Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings perfect peace, comfort, and restoration to the cosmic questions that each and every human being who walks on this earth begins to have when they ponder the universe and purpose and why am I here? No one else but Jesus. 